thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. We're your hosts, Brian Edwards, Nathan Cravat. I'm J.C. Groves. It's good to be here with you on episode number 51. Guys, how's your week been? Everything's fantastic. You know, we had our third ice storm in a row. But guys, ice storms can be encouraging. This is why. The past two Sundays, when there was ice and snow, attendance was so bad this past Sunday, we were up attendance-wise by 300%. So if you want to be able to brag, if you want to be able to brag about tremendous growth, after a snow Sunday, count the percentage you're up, and it will sound incredible. That's hilarious. Hey, Brian, you need to write a book on church growth and strategy <laughs> because, dude, you just grew a church 300% in one week. During COVID. Come on, man. Yeah, but there's also another thing. Um, so a little while back, you guys know I was out of the pulpit because I was I was sick. And we had a couple of guys fill in. And while these guys were filling in, there were some visitors who were there. So everybody was so excited, man. These families, they seem awesome. And, and I think they're going to be a great addition uh, to the Hope family. And then I came back and preached the Sunday after that when I was feeling better, and now they haven't been back since. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Well, I'm just down here struggling with the 70 degrees and sunny, finally, in South Georgia. It was about 65 in Chattanooga today. That was nice. Was it really? It's been raining, no joke, a month solid. Like, we saw this orange globe come up out of the sky today and nobody knew what it was and oh man i feel like brian right now so i'm gonna stop um hey we want to thank our sponsor here at the recovering fundamentalist podcast free life so you can check them out today by going to the recovering fundamentalist.org click on the free life soap tab and use your promo code rfp at checkout to get 20 percent off of your order Guys, you know something that I'm super excited about with the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast is something we rolled out last week with the RFWP and the Young Baptist podcast coming on board. It's the RFP Network, and I'm excited because this week we're going to announce two more podcasts that are joining up with the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast network. Nate, why don't you go ahead and share who the next podcast is joining the RFP Network? Well, guys... Our listeners are no strangers to the Church Split podcast because all three of us have been Mm -hmm. interviewed on the Church Split with Will and Brian, and we're so excited to welcome them to the RFP Network family, and they are coming on board, and we know that there are big things in store. Now, here's the thing about the Church Split. These guys love to stir the pot, dude. They, They actually push it a little bit further than we do, and we've had people ask us, like, are you sure about this? And we're like, man, yeah. If we can put someone else on the network that gets in more trouble than we do, exactly. that works out great for us. So exactly. we we need some PR help here. So we're bringing on Will and Brian, and we know these guys are going to live up to the challenge. So we're definitely getting a lot of diversity with Lois and Emily with the RFWP. You got Clay and Josh with the Young Baptist Podcast. And then you jump all the way to the complete opposite <laughs> with Will and Brian in the Church Split Podcast. But there's one that falls kind of right in between those. Brian, tell us who the other podcast is. Yeah, the next podcast that we're going to get to talk about to the RFP family is the PK Podcast, the Preacher's Kid Podcast. All three of us mm. are Preacher's Kids. And uh, we know what that life is like, life in the glass house. Oh, yeah. 
And you know, yep. most preachers' kids, man, they have scars. There, there's some PTSD connected to being a preacher's kid. Oh yeah, and the guy who is hosting this is gonna sound real familiar to our listeners. Yeah, John Groves. Uh, no relation to JC. <laughs> no relation. <laughs> but but John Groves. John has been a friend of mine for a good while. Um, he's actually blessed me by referring to me as a mentor, as a pastor. And, uh, you know, John's just a great young man. By the way, check this out. They're carrying on the tradition. He and his wife, Olivia, are going to have a baby here in just a few months, their first child. So that's pretty amazing. And, uh, hey, we tried to narrow it down. I think they might have gotten pregnant about the time they were in Danville. So we're laying claim to that child. That'll be, <laughs> that'll be, that'll be my first grandbaby. But uh, we're so excited about the Preacher's Kid podcast. It's an awesome podcast. People are going to get a lot of help from that. So that's an exciting addition. Yeah, you can find them on Instagram at Those Preachers Kids. That's Those Preachers Kids. Or find the church split on Instagram and on TikTok. Will Hess is a master at TikTok, and uh, he is absolutely hilarious on there. And guess what, guys? I don't know if you know this or not, but we now have a recovering fundamentalist TikTok page. Did you know that, Brian? Uh, my kids have forbidden me from having TikTok. They've told me that I'm not allowed. Well, here's where you can find us. It's the RF Podcast on TikTok. And right now what we're doing is we've been asking folks to send us in videos of their one-minute Why I'm a Recovering Fundamentalist story. You can do that today. Just hold your phone in vertical position and send that to us. Why I'm a Recovering Fundamentalist. And we're going to be doing some stuff on TikTok that's going to lead into something pretty incredible in the next few months that uh, you're going to be a part of. I guess I'm going to have to go ahead and download TikTok now. I've Me never too. had a TikTok, but there's no way I'm going to let the fam be out there by themselves. I've got to uh, hang around and make sure they're representing the brand well. Exactly. Yep. It'll cause my kids to disown me, but I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> oh, Brian, I can't wait to see. You should do, I, I could see Brian on TikTok doing the quintessential dad jokes and it'd be the biggest TikTok out there. Like you, you would have the biggest account ever if you just did quiet <laughs> moments with Brian. Hey kids. <laughs> I think it would be hilarious. Well, you know, I always see the world through pictures. And so I'm always using picture analogies and things like that for everything. And uh, we've got a few people now around Hope Church and they're like, this has been moments of wisdom with Pastor Brian. So maybe That's I can awesome. uh, do something like it. that. So today's interview is going to be pretty incredible. Nathan, you want to set up what we're going to be hearing today? Yes, definitely. So we're so excited to have Barnabas Piper coming on to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, and we have a little bit of a surprise for you. Due to some unforeseen circumstances, instead of one week with Barnabas Piper, we're going to get two weeks. Let's this go. week, we are going to be playing a sermon by Barnabas Piper that is so relevant to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Guys, tell me if there are any two more relevant topics than the fear of God and keeping the commandments of God. Have any two topics been more abused in legalism? No. No, and you know, here's what's sad, Nathan. Those verses have been used in such a way that a lot of people have, you know, kind of that abused dog syndrome. You know, the owner of the dog reaches out its hand and the dog immediately crouches down. 
-hmm. It's immediately afraid. It's posture is, is one of just complete submission because it's afraid of the hand of the owner so that when people own that dog in the future, even people who would be kind to it and pet it and be gracious to it, it doesn't know how to receive that kind of affection or attention. That fear is still a part of its disposition. And so many people have used those verses to make people afraid of the hand of God when he's a Mm -hmm. loving heavenly father. I think the fact what you just said, Nate, struck some PTSD in a lot of people because they've heard preaching on that for so long that is so wrong that we're excited for them to hear it right. Yeah, and I'm excited about this sermon because it is a gospel-centered sermon. It's a sermon that's focused on grace, but it's a theologically stout sermon. Barnabas Piper brings the heat, man. It is awesome, and I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I believe it worked out so much better that we get to hear this sermon before we hear his story and hear the interview. So this week and next week, we've got Barnabas Piper, and guys, you just have no idea what is in store for you. This is going to be such a blessing. I say we get right into the Word. Y'all ready? Let's do it. I'm ready. Let's go. Three. You know what makes women stupid is college. Jesus was not a bartender. High back. Two. You have lost your mind. Long tongue heifers have given me a lot more trouble than heifers wearing breeches. And you know that. Say amen right there. One. Let me tell you something, bozo. They'll be selling frosties in hell for this boy. Put on a pair of pink underwear. Amen. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years of age. High back. Twenty twenty one's been a bit of a bit of a rough year so far, and twenty twenty, as we all know, wasn't so awesome itself. And I don't intend to spend a lot of time dwelling on that, but I feel like that's important to say because the first words of the verse that we're going to look at today are the phrase "the end of the matter," and in a time as as we're in now, that sounds a little bit ominous. Like everything feels like it could be coming to an end at any time. So starting off a verse with the end of the matter sounds a little bit like buckle your seatbelts and hands and arms inside the vehicle. And this, this might be rough. On the other hand, we've seen enough dumb arguments in the last several months about politics and about masks and about whatever else that the end of the matter could sound a little bit like a simplistic just cutting that off. So somebody just kind of being like, all right, all right, all right. So here's the end of the matter. And then they just try to end the, end the whole thing. So we've got something to be afraid of and something to roll our eyes at. Um, But this verse that we're going to get to in just a moment is neither of those. This phrase, the end of the matter, sets up comfort for us. A new reality. And isn't that what we want right now more than anything is, good Lord, change all of this. Give us something better and something new. So in this case, the end of the matter is a steadying hand on our lives. It means that it's the end of our need to worry. It's the end of our need for anger, the end of our anxiety, the end of needless confusion. 
and it lifts our eyes from all this fervor and hubbub of the world around us to something greater. So that's what we're going to find this morning, starting with Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. That's our text for this morning, our primary text. It's just one verse. And this is what it says. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Let me read it one more time. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, since I just grabbed a verse out of the middle of the Bible, I feel like we need a little context to know where we're coming from and who wrote this and what's happening here. Uh, That's going to help us understand it. So Ecclesiastes falls in what is called the wisdom literature of the Bible. So these are the books of the Bible that are practical instruction to live life in a wise way. What does that mean? It means living life in a, in a manner that is according to God's will, that sees the world the way God sees it, acts according to what he uh, wants us to, and lives life with godly skill. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom ultimately is living life with godly skill. It's not a collection of knowledge. It's not being the smartest person in the room, uh, which is a good thing for most of us. It is a matter of falling in line with God's will and living that way. And that's what the wisdom literature does. And it does so with a clear understanding of just how messed up this world is. It's not idealized. Like when you read Proverbs and when you read Ecclesiastes, you know full well that it's written in the midst of a mess. It's looking around and going, how do we deal with sin? How do we deal with conflict? How do we deal with temptation? How do we deal with fools? Are we a fool? So that's what Ecclesiastes lies in the middle of. And it was written by Solomon. And he refers to himself as the preacher throughout the text. So if you see that phrase, that's just, that's his, uh, kind of his, his title in the midst of this. Well, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus himself. We know this because in 1 Kings, we see Solomon was anointed king of Israel. And God basically says, what do you want? What do you want for your reign, for your kingdom? And he says, I want wisdom, Lord. And God says, because you didn't ask for wealth or for power or for fame and you asked for wisdom, I'm actually going to give you all of those. And so it tells how wise Solomon is, but then also how wealthy he was and how far his name spread and how much peace came to the kingdom. And so what we know about Solomon is that he started off his rule living according to God's will with godly wisdom just flowing out of him and really transforming the kingdom of Israel into uh, an international power. But he didn't stay there. He wasn't faithful to the Lord. He was tempted and he began to pursue every other means of fulfillment. Money, power, sex, uh, political gains, all of it. His fame got to his head as it is so wont to do. So in Ecclesiastes, we have the wise words of an old man. This is Solomon looking back on his life and saying, I have this wisdom. I have these experiences for better and worse. Here's what I have to tell you about the meaning of life. That's really what Ecclesiastes is about. And that's what this verse is the culmination of. So it's a final charge by a wise old man, essentially saying, if you're going to take one thing away, it's this. 
And Ecclesiastes 12, 13 is the very, it's the next to last verse in the book. So it's, it's his last word to us. So it's something we should really sit up and take note of. And when we look at this verse, the thing that should stand out first to us is how comprehensive it is. There's three words, end, all, and whole. It is the end of the matter. All has been heard. And then it is the whole duty of man. There are no exceptions allowed in this verse. It is the, it has covered all of life, every experience. We have talked about this, the grand sweep of human life, all of it. And then this is the whole duty of man. This is not a thing you should consider. This is not one thing you should do. This is everything. This is all of it. And for the wisest man to say these things, he didn't throw around these words lightly. You know, we throw around um, kind of these exemplary phrases and we call things, you know, that was the best, this is the greatest. No, they're not. They're just good. They're just good. And Solomon doesn't do that. So when he uses these comprehensive terms, he means it. So this is a verse that encompasses more than a season or a context or a circumstance. He doesn't mean the end of the last decade, the end of my rule. He means all of life. This is all of life, which means it's wisdom for all of life. And the thing is, what we're going to find is that it's actually wisdom beyond the limits of how we normally think about life. This is wisdom for this life and for eternity. It's all wrapped up in this verse. And that's why... There's hope in this verse. So this is a verse that is just a few words long that points us to a doorway into an eternal hope that we're going to explore in just a moment. So this morning I have three points to help us walk through what all this means and what this looks like. I figured since I was invited to preach at a Baptist church, three points was the right number. It seemed traditional. So that's my gift to you, Baptists. Um, Point number one, what is the matter? It says this is the end of the matter, so what is the matter? Point number two, fearing God is a new reality. Fearing God is not an adjustment of our current reality. It is an entirely new reality. Point number three, Jesus Christ is our wisdom. I'll get to that one in a little bit. Point number one, what is the matter? The verse begins with the end of the matter all has been heard. So the question that needs answering is, what has been heard? What is this matter? And the answer to this, uh, to answer this, we need to go back to the very beginning of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to do a, a flyover survey of the whole book. I promise it won't take as long as you fear. Um, verse number two, chapter one, verse number two. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So he repeats the word vanity, what, five times? That, uh, that seems to be important. And that's where he's starting. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So a moment ago, I said we were heading toward hope. This does not seem like a promising start. This seems very much like we're being told nothing matters and everything is pointless. But there's a clue just a few verses later how we're supposed to understand this. In chapter one, verse nine, so just, just down the page, it says, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new, and here's the key phrase, under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is repeated throughout Ecclesiastes. 
that tells us what vanity refers to. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity under the sun. So let me explain those terms. Under the sun means limited by our lifespan. It's not a physical location as much as it is a time span. The sun rises on life and the sun sets on life and we live under the sun. We have a defined set of years that God has given us. So that means we're, we're limited by mortality, by brokenness. This is the effect of the fall in Genesis 3. Under the sun, everything under the sun is shaped by the effects of sin. It's twisted, it's broken, it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. That helps us understand what vanity means. What he's not saying here is nothing matters. He's not saying life is pointless. He's not saying just wait it out and get to heaven. What he's saying is there's not a single thing in this world that will fulfill you. Vanity means more like vapor. It's passing. It's temporal. It's not substantial enough to bear the weight of your hopes and dreams. So nothing in this world works the way it's supposed to, which means that we throw our hopes into it and we throw our efforts into it and we always end up disappointed to some degree. So when he says vanity of vanities under the sun, that's what he means. He's defining the context of our lifespan shaped by human sinfulness and the curse. And therefore, nothing in this life will fulfill us. And then he, throughout the rest of the book, he gives a, a survey of sorts of what this covers. And remember, Solomon was the richest most famous man of his day who had an opportunity to try everything so he can speak to everything. So he talks in chapter one about the vanity of pursuing wisdom, being educated, collecting knowledge, being the smartest, knowing the most, being an expert. And he says, this will not fulfill you. It's vanity. He doesn't say it's not good. He says it won't fulfill in chapter two, he talks about pleasure. So this is living a life of ease. This is anything from the little things, sitting out on your back deck with a cup of coffee to a comfortable retirement, to living for the weekend, to anything that we do that shapes our life around ease, comfort, and, and a life of pleasure. Again, he doesn't say those things are bad. He says, those things will not fulfill you. He goes on to talk about living wisely. This is an interesting one because we just called this wisdom literature, which means that you'd think that living wisely would be set up as that's the be all and end all. But when he says, even if you live wisely, you do your best to live a righteous life, to, um, to be an upright and moral person, to have the right answers, to be a good person. In the end, you face the same fate as everyone else. Death comes for us all. So he doesn't say living wisely is a waste of time. He does say it doesn't put you in a different reality. You're still under the sun. Then he moves on to hard work. We love hard work. Well, maybe we don't love hard work. We love the promise of hard work, the myth of put your nose to the grindstone. You can be whatever you want. You work hard enough, you'll get ahead in life. And he says, maybe, maybe not. Some people work hard and are poor forever. Some people don't work hard and they get handed everything. 
And in the end, even if you have everything, you don't have everything. It still doesn't fulfill. And he talks about wealth and fame and honor in chapter five. These are things he knew well. Some of us in the room might know these things well. For most of us, these are temptations. You know, anytime I hear a preacher say, wealth won't fulfill you, I'm kind of like, well, maybe, but I sure would like to try. It sounds nice. You know, when you say fame won't fulfill, you go, yeah, but there's something that feel, would feel really good about just being known by everybody. But we know full well that this is, this is not the case. Just by experience. We're always tempted by these things, but we also, like, we, we know the cautionary tales. Uh, a few years ago, Jim Carrey, the actor and comedian, gave an acceptance speech at an awards ceremony and I'm sure everybody expected him to get up and kind of make his funny Play-Doh faces and clown around a little bit and yuck it up and accept his, his trophy and then skip back to his seat. And instead, he took the trophy and sort of gazed at it for a minute. And then the essence of his speech was, I wish every single person watching this could have wealth and fame so they knew that's not where happiness lies. This is a man who's made hundreds of millions of dollars in his life, who can't go anywhere without being recognized and... And he's a, he's a broken man. I hope he finds genuine happiness. But that was his message. And every famous person we know of is trying not to be famous. They're hiding behind sunglasses. They are removing themselves from the spotlight. Or it's messing with their psychology and they're going a little crazy. Or they're hungry for power. We know that power corrupts. Or it, it's a temptation to corruption. So again, wealth, fame, honor. Are they bad in and of themselves? No. But they don't fulfill. And lastly, he ends with clinging to youthfulness. So he says, the effort to stay young forever. He said, don't waste your youthfulness. But it's going. And it's going for all of us. And there's some of you in the room who that feels like an impossibility because you're young. Um, I'm 37. And I feel way older than I did 10 years ago. And I talk to people who are 47 and they say, oh, just wait. Youth cannot be held onto. There's no fitness regimen. There's no vitamins. All of the creams that talk about anti-aging. There is no anti-aging. It's all a lie. Time moves forward. Life under the sun continues to sunset. And pouring yourself into that in any form won't fulfill you. So Ecclesiastes offers this survey of life under the sun with all the tensions and complexities. But here's what's great about it. One of the things. It avoids false simplicity or false dichotomies. It doesn't say God good, earth bad. All of life is bad. Everything is immoral. Avoid temptation. Withdraw. We're not called to withdraw from the world. We're not called to pull away from life and live in a little evangelical commune. That's sin. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to live life. What Ecclesiastes emphasizes is that life is short. Life is full of injustice. Life is marked by the fall, but life is good. And God's fingerprints are all over it. And there are pleasures that are good gifts that are good in their time. He uses that phrase. He says, everything is good and beautiful in its time. So life is short and broken, but life is worth living well. That's the context of Ecclesiastes. That's, that's the promise here. A promise. But right now we're left with a little bit of a conundrum because 
We don't know what to do with all this. We've got a fallen world. It's worth living. But what does that mean? What is our way forward? And given that it started with vanity of vanities, you'd kind of expect it to be a bit of a passive like, well, just, just you know, try to make it. Make it to your end. But that's not what he says. He says, this, this is the end. The end of the matter all has been heard. This is the end. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And this is not some spiritual platitude that you would put on a bumper sticker. This isn't let go and let God, whatever that means. What are you letting go of? What are you letting God do? God doesn't need your permission to do anything. That's just, that's a phrase that people use because they don't want to deal in the hard things. This phrase is not that. This is something else entirely. The preacher is lifting our eyes to an entirely different reality, lifting our eyes to God's reality, to who God is. No longer are we just looking under the sun at this broken world and temporal life. We're looking at something else. Our answer lies under heaven, a new and better reality. And that's my second point is that fearing God, where it says fear God and keep his commandments, fearing God is a new reality for us. It's not just a thing that improves our life here until we die. It recreates everything. But to start, we need to answer the question, what does it mean to fear God? If the Bible says fear God and keep his commandments, it'd be worthwhile to know what fear God means. I think if I polled you, you know, you wrote out answers, what does fear God mean? Or you shouted them back to me. I, I would suspect you would shout back words like reverence or awe or worship, uh, wonder, honor. That's what it looks like to fear God. And you'd be absolutely correct. All of those. And somebody, some bold soul, some questioning kind of person might raise their hand tentatively and say, does it mean to like actually be afraid of God? I mean, it says fear. Does it mean to be afraid? And, and in one sense, the answer is yes. In God's holiness, we should have a righteous sense of fear because sin has no place in the presence of God. So there's a sense of, yeah, God's not Santa Claus. There's a, there's a fearfulness to God. And all of those things are true. But I find in my own life that a list of terms like that to describe God mostly feels like a thesaurus, not reality. This is just a list of descriptions. I don't really know what that means for me. So let's see if we can flesh it out a little bit. Fearing God means a clear Daily awareness of God's presence. That's the first part. A clear daily awareness of God's presence. You can't fear God if you think he's far away or absent. So his presence and reality that then shapes how we navigate life under the sun. So not only is God present and very real, but that presence shapes how we live in this life so that we're not caught up in the vanity and the temptation. We're not tempted to try to fulfill our lives in, in temporal things. That's what fearing God looks like. It's daily reality that shapes our life away from vanity. 
if our understanding of God is not doing that, we do not fear God. We think about God, maybe. We have a false notion of God. But we don't fear God. Because if we fear God, we will live according to his commandments, as this verse says. So it means seeing God is more real and more true than what the world says. We are barraged daily by invitations to believe all sorts of things. Everything from political conspiracy to advertisements about anti-aging creams to the fact that you need a new fishing pole. We're just invited into the world's sense of this will make you happy. This is the truth. This fearing God is the orientation away from that stuff. Again, not that all of that is bad. Some of it is, but to not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that much. God is more real and more true than what's right in front of our faces. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11 helps us understand how this works. It says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So this means that under the sun, in this life, this temporal fallen life, we are hardwired. Every single person is hardwired and towards something beyond vanity, something eternal. It says God put eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we can encapsulate everything of God in our hearts. It doesn't mean we can understand everything about God. In fact, he makes that very clear. He's put eternity into our hearts yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So we're still fallen and we're still finite. But there is something in us that can only be filled by the eternal righteous reality of God. There's something in us that is a, like a compass and a gravitational pull towards that truth. So we yearn and long for and gravitate, but in this life, we don't find it. In fact, in this life, our propensity is to, is to keep coming back to the temporal things, thinking they can fill the eternal void. And we end up disappointed repeatedly. So what does this mean? It means that fearing God is living as if all of that eternity that we don't understand is reliably and perfectly in God's hands. One of our greatest temptations is that if we don't understand it, it can't be true. This is where so much doubt comes from. It's beyond my understanding, therefore it can't be true. What if it's beyond our understanding and God has it in his hands and it's real and you just don't get it and I just don't get it and God holds the reality. Fearing God rests in that and says, if I don't understand it, God does. It makes sense in his reality and his reality is the true reality. So I'm clearly the one who's missing it, not him. Fearing God is a right ordering of all things. The temporal things fall into place behind the eternal things. The good things are seen for what they are, not for what they're not meant to be. They are meant to give us pleasure. They are meant to give us joy. They are meant to be shared. They're not meant to stake our lives on. Fearing God means gratitude for those good things. And that's weird to say fear and gratitude. But in this sense of fearing God, he's the giver and we are the recipient. Every good gift comes from above. And so fearing God looks like gratitude. 
Proverbs 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's actually repeated throughout Proverbs. So fearing God means entrance into wisdom, aligning ourselves with the ruler of the universe in all of his ways and all of his thoughts. And what does that mean? It means it leads us into keeping his commandments. So Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, fear God and keep his commandments. That makes perfect sense because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is living according to God's plan and will and way, which is keeping his commandments. So the fear of the Lord results in keeping his commandments. It's what happens. Fearing God is living as if God is real. It's living in with our heads, our minds, our perspective above the sun. And it means that obeying God's commandments is not merely a list of, of rules and commandments and, and, or a list of uh, kind of burdensome laws, which is our gut reaction. When we hear commands, if you're like me, maybe it's just that I'm contrarian and I don't like being told what to do. But if somebody says, here's a command for you, I'm, gonna, I'm immediately going to dislike that person and I'm definitely not going to want to do whatever they say. Um, and I see this in my kids too. You know, every weekend we have to clean the house because, because there are kids in the house and it's a disaster. So they're 15 and 12 and we say, all right, it's time to clean the bathrooms and vacuum and somebody's got to go out in the backyard and pick up all the dog poop. And like this, this is our list of tasks, got to do the dishes. There's just an immediate like, oh, and it's like I just dropped an anvil of responsibility on them and crushed them into the floor. And that's us about God's commands. But, but that's, not, that's not what is portrayed here. Because this is a new reality of freedom. It's a new reality of, of, uh, of identity. It's a new reality of lifting us up. So when it says, fear God and keep his commands, this reality of God is lifting burdens from us. It's lifting us out of the spin cycle of disappointment and keeping his commands is a beautiful result of fearing him, not just a gritting our teeth, miserable obedience to him. That's not what he wants. He certainly doesn't want disobedience, but he wants us to recognize that every command is an invitation into something better. That's sort of true when I ask my kids to clean the house. A house that's not disgusting is more pleasant to live in than one that is disgusting. But I get why they're disappointed. Like it's much more pleasant to watch TV than it is to wash dishes. That's not the case with God. It's an infinitely better reality and freedom in his commands. Now I wouldn't be surprised if some of you feel stuck at this point some sense of being overwhelmed, feeling a little bit lost. But I think that's what the Old Testament sets up for us on purpose. We're supposed to feel like we can't do this. When I look you in the eye and I say, fear God and keep his commandments, to say how or I can't is exactly right. Because you can't. I can't. We cannot bring ourselves to fear God. We can't think rightly about God to the point of embracing all of this. This new reality feels like some sort of spiritual alternate universe. 
It all just feels distant. We're still bound by the curse. We're still in sin to a degree. Even if, you know, even if we're Christians, we still struggle with temptations. And our powers, I mean, Ecclesiastes tells us, if we try to do this in our own strength, it will only result in disappointment and frustration. So what do we need? We need something, or better yet, someone to lift us into this reality above the sun and into this freedom and into this new identity. And that brings us to our third point. Jesus Christ is our wisdom. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's a lot in this verse. But it's really important that we note those first few words, and because of him. Because of who? Because of God. Because of the same God Ecclesiastes 12 referred to. So Ecclesiastes 12 says, fear God and keep his commandments. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. There's a straight line between these two verses as is there between all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then we see the word because, because of God. What does that mean? It means he brought about what follows. So because of God, anyone who believes is in Christ Jesus. That same Jesus who became to us wisdom. Because of God, we have righteousness in Christ. Because of God, there's sanctification. Because of God, there's redemption. This is God's plan. And he worked it. And he didn't fail at anything. So what do we see here? In short, this is another invitation to fear the Lord. Because of God, all of this is true in Christ. And that should transform how we view God. Now let's walk through the verse a little bit and say, because of God, what? Because of God, what happened? Because of God, we who believe are in Christ Jesus. It says so right there. Now the phrase in Christ Jesus is a pivotal one in the New Testament. Because it's what defines a Christian. Throughout the writings in the New Testament, in Christ Jesus is, the, I think, the most frequent definition of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. It says we're saved by faith. It does say believe but the identity of a Christian is in Christ. Now, identity is a word that we kind of know what it means, but it's really hard to articulate. But what is identity ultimately? Identity is who we are in our essence. And it's who I am supposed to be, who God made me to be. My identity is what God made me to be. So in Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, you have a new identity. In Christ, you are exactly who God intended you to be. That's very different than the searching for identity we do under the sun. So we have a new identity. We have new life. So in Christ, we are recreated. We're a new person and relocated. Our life is not defined by circumstances, but is defined by the context of Jesus Christ himself. To be in Christ is to, to 
to be above the sun. Ecclesiastes talks about under the sun in Christ is above the sun. And that's on purpose. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon was setting it up so that life in Christ would be offset against something. In God's wisdom, the Old Testament paints a backdrop against which Christ becomes more real. And here's the phrase that unlocks Ecclesiastes 12, 13. So we're in Christ who became to us wisdom from God. So earlier we defined wisdom as living with godly skill, living according to the will of God, living with God's mindset. Well, who did that? Christ. Perfectly. He's the only one who did it. And not only that, he did it with the same limitations and the same weaknesses and the same temptations that we have. He was fully God and fully man. He came in to a fallen earth and lived perfectly. He embodied God's wisdom. What does that mean? It means that every proverb in the book of Proverbs is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It means that all the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is embodied in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment. It means that every command in the law came to fruition in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled every single one of them. In fact, he announced this. I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Every prophecy in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. This is what becoming wisdom means. It doesn't mean he did a good job. It means every word of God in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ perfectly. And he lived it perfectly, facing the same challenges we do. He feared God and kept his commandments perfectly. He fulfilled the whole duty of man and that's why he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Ecclesiastes 12 says, fear God and keep his commands for what? This is the whole duty of man. That's what Jesus did in its entirety. If any other person had done that, he would have been the savior or he would have shown that we don't need a savior. But we can't. We cannot fulfill the whole duty of man. This is a verse about Jesus Christ. This is a verse showing us our need for Jesus Christ. And this means that Jesus is our righteousness, as the verse from 1 Corinthians says. In him we have righteousness. What does that mean? It means that we are not righteous enough because we cannot fulfill the whole duty of man we are sinners, we fail, but when we are in Christ, who does God see when he looks at us? He sees Christ. We have taken on the righteousness of Christ when we believe. That's amazing. That's why we have access to the Father. Earlier I talked about fear, entering the Father's presence. In Christ, we don't have to fear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we can enter the Father's presence with gladness. Because Christ is our righteousness. In him we have redemption. That's the making right of a wrong. The paying of a price. 
Redemption from our sins, the debt that we'd owe. It's a rescue and it's undeserved because Jesus did it right. He didn't deserve it. But he fulfilled the whole duty of man on our behalf too. He went beyond the whole duty of man and took on the role of sacrificial redeemer. And in him, we have sanctification. What is sanctification? It's a concise way of saying, growing to be more like Jesus, growing in holiness. So if we think about life under the sun, holiness is a life that doesn't look like life under the sun. It looks like life with Christ. It is not defined by the sins and temptations of this world. It's defined by following Christ. And in Jesus, we have that. How? By the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian passage. You don't see the Holy Spirit mentioned. But it is only in the power of the Holy Spirit that we grow in Christ-likeness. When we are in Christ, we are indwelled with the Spirit so that we can fear God and keep his commandments and begin to fulfill the duty that God has given us. So Christ is our wisdom does not mean that God gives us wisdom. It doesn't mean that Christ gives us wisdom. He's not handing out superpowers. He's not handing out wisdom vitamins. He is the wisdom. For us to be wise, we must be in Christ. We must live in his wisdom. It means that anything we do that is righteous, anything we say that is good and true, anything that honors the Lord, Christ gets the credit for that, not us. Because we're in him if we believe. And outside of Christ, our best efforts will only lead us to vain outcomes. We try this all the time. I need to get right with God before I can approach God. No, you need to go to Jesus before you can approach God and you can't get yourself right. But in Christ, you're right. I need to fix my habits before God will accept me. No. You need to throw yourself on the mercy of Christ so that you have the power to see your habits changed and in Christ, God embraces you. Being in Christ lifts us into the very presence of God so that we can rightly fear him because we know who he is. And then all the idols and the ideologies and fears of this world take their proper place, which is right under Jesus's feet. And this is the beginning of wisdom. So as we conclude, let's revisit Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Outside of Christ, this is a crushing verse. It is a statement of all the things you will fail at. In Christ, it lands different. No longer is it burdensome. The end of the matter isn't a statement of Judgment. It isn't a statement of meaninglessness. It isn't a shrug of giving up. It's a statement of hope. Because the end of the matter points to Jesus. It's the end of our striving. Look to Christ. He was lifting our eyes above the sun to the greater reality of fearing God and living as if this world and our lives are His. 
And this tells us what we do when all of the soul-sucking realities of this life get at us. When our dream job becomes a nightmare or becomes unemployment, when our family falls apart, when we lose our health, thing that many of us younger folks take for granted, when we are victims of injustice or perpetrators of injustice, we're crushed by the weight of guilt, when we cannot seem to escape that one sin, that habitual sin, and that's how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as defined by shame, not by Christ. When all of our best efforts under the sun fail to fulfill, we know what to do. Because outside of Christ, all, all is vanity. We have no hope. Outside of Christ, we're bound to the workings of this world, which really does mean eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, if, if that's all there was. Outside of Christ, we have no wisdom to navigate this life well. We just keep going back to the same old solutions. But instead, we fear God and keep his commandments in Christ and through Christ. And that means we are redeemed and sanctified and made righteous. So all of those negative things I just said are not the defining aspects of our life. Christ is. And the fear of the Lord that we have is personal as a father and a child, not as some distant being who runs things when he feels like it. And by following Christ, we see the right order of things. So we know what matters and what doesn't, what is good and what is not, what is worth putting our hopes in and what is not. And we gain the perspective of God. We see with godly eyes. When the Bible talks about let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Let those who have eyes to see, let them see. This is what it's talking about. It is the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, our hearts, our ears to recognize truth transforming truth about Jesus. And isn't that the end of the matter and the whole duty of man? To be in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what an amazing reality that you have given us a responsibility that you can fulfill because we can't do it. We are called to fear you and keep your commandments. Ultimately, we are called to be in Christ. And how do we get into Christ? But through your grace and your mercy to save us. What a mercy. I pray for those here who are not yet in Christ, that they would feel eternity in their hearts, drawing them to you. For those who are in Christ, I pray that that would be the defining reality in, in suffering in joy, in happiness, in whatever circumstances, that being in Christ would be the thing that they throw themselves on daily for your mercy, for your grace, for your generosity. I thank you for your word that lays all this out for us. Help us to live by it and in it. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. What a powerful word from God. That mm -hmm. sermon is amazing. Our listeners need to hear that. You know, in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul expresses a burden that he had for Israel. He wanted to see them saved. You know, in chapter 9, he said, I'd be willing to be accursed from Christ, cut off from Christ, if it meant them being saved. 
And then in chapter 10, verse 1, yes, I desire for them to be saved. And then Paul also said, I pray for them to be saved. And then in the next two to three verses, he explains why they weren't being saved. Because they were trying to produce a righteousness of their own. Because instead of the law of God pointing to their sin, it created arrogance in them. I love that Barnabas in that sermon points to Christ being our hope, Christ being our righteousness, Christ being our everything. Um, I hope our listeners realize that was a great investment of time to hear that great Mm. message preached straight from the Word of God. Yeah, it's, it's sad to hear that text used to promote legalism. But to hear someone use that text and run straight to Christ and say that Christ is our wisdom, you can't talk about wisdom literature or living the kind of godly life God created us to live without Christ, that Christ is the one that fulfilled that verse. None of us could fear God and keep his commandments perfectly, but Jesus did that for us. What an incredible sermon. And I I don't think just our listeners need to hear that. I needed to hear that. We needed to hear that for sure, to throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ and run rightly fearing him. My goodness. Mm. I mean, that's just powerful, powerful stuff right there. Well, if our listeners weren't looking forward to hearing Barnabas Piper's interview and his story and his testimony and more of his wisdom before today, I know you're looking forward to that now. And do you realize accidentally we just made a lot of the fundamentalists who talk about us liars because they say we don't give the gospel. We're just a bunch of skinny jean wearing liberals <laughs> who don't care about the gospel. And this whole episode has been gospel saturated. I love it. I tell you what, I'll take that sermon over every camp meeting sermon put together end to end wrapped around the state of Georgia. I'll take that one sermon over every one of those. Amen, Amen to that. I tell you what, that is a softball setting up next week. I'm fired up to have Barnabas Piper back on next week for part two. Hey, we want to thank Free Life Soap for being a sponsor of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. You can go to the recoveringfundamentalist.org, click on the Free Life Soap tab, use your promo code RFP at checkout and get 20% off. Guys, I hope you have a great week. Looking forward to next week with Barnabas Piper, part two. Me too. It's going to be awesome. Y'all have a good week. Be sweet. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.